the 19th Psalm. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven of heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, forever endure, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression." Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Our sermon today is Exodus 7. It's 8 through 13, and this is entitled, The Hardening of Pharaoh's Heart. So, Exodus 7, starting in verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh. And let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Every time I type up another sermon, I think there is a lot of difficult stuff here for people to listen to. And then almost immediately, I also think, thank you, Lord, for people who are willing to come to these sermons. I am so, so, so grateful for people who are willing to sit through difficulty in order to know you more. And today is no different. It's just six verses which are necessary to understand the logical progression of what is happening in Egypt why it has happened, and what the result of those steps will be. Two of those results are, one, the redemption of Israel, and two, God receiving the glory that he is due from his creatures. In order for those things to come about, we are told that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Some questions which then arise may be, one, how can this be fair? Is the hardening of one to save another morally right? Okay, and why is God due glory at all? Is God a narcissist, as so many over the ages have claimed? In order to understand the truth of these questions, we have to carefully evaluate the passage, and we need to thoughtfully consider what it means to harden one's heart or to harden another's heart. To misunderstand this concept will lead down a person down an entirely different path than another person will think. For the non-believer, they will come to see God as overbearing, unrighteous, and morally faulted. For the believer, misunderstanding the hardening of Pharaoh's heart will lead to a completely different theological perspective on the nature of God and his relationship with man. The misanalysis of just a few words can have an enormous bearing on how we perceive our relationship with God. Our text verse today is something that we'll see a little bit later in this sermon, okay? But it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it's verses 14 and 15. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Satan is behind all deception including the dismissal or distortion of God's word and the Lord's intent for the people of the world. 
Today, we'll see actions which Satan took to deceive Pharaoh through his magicians. The fact that the Lord knew that this would occur does not show either a manipulating or an uncaring God. Rather, by properly seeing what occurs, it will show that God understands the human heart. He works within the framework of that understanding to accomplish his sovereign purposes for us. This is the glory of God as is revealed in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, I've got three thoughts for you today. The first is, show me a miracle. That's verses 8 through 10. Today we arrive at six verses which come after the Lord's assurances that he was ready to act on the events which will lead to the exodus of the Israelites and which will come before the first plague on Egypt. Everything which is coming will occur in a methodical manner and it is designed to increasingly harden the heart of Pharaoh in order to bring maximum judgment upon him and upon Egypt. The first account here is given as an introduction to the plagues. It is a chance for Pharaoh to see what the Lord could do in comparison to Pharaoh's wise men and his sorcerers. Even if Pharaoh doesn't see the truth of what will occur, they will, but they will fail to counsel him on the truth of the matter. By the time they actually begin to advise Pharaoh that he needs to respond, it's going to be too late. His heart will be too hardened to respond. Thus, the failure of his advisors leads to his own hardening. And this is not unique in the Bible. An account which occurs after the death of King Solomon is comparable to it. In 1 Kings chapter 12, after Solomon's death, the people of Israel came to his son Rehoboam, and they asked that the burdens which Solomon had placed on them be lightened. He told them to return in three days, and he would give his answer to them. He first consulted the elders of Israel who were under Solomon. This is their answer. This is the elders that were under Solomon that he's consulting. If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Sadly, the next words of the Bible say this, but he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and he consulted the young men who had grown up with them and who stood before him. Their advice was just the opposite of the elders. Here's what they said. Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. By not listening to his elder advisors, the people of Israel rebelled against Rehoboam, and the kingdom was, from that time forward, divided. The two kingdoms became known as Israel to the north and Judah to the south. However, even this was anticipated by God. That's recorded in minute detail in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 26 through 40. So read that passage today, and you'll see that God knew in advance of the outcome of the situation. He even directed the events to ensure that they would transpire as they did. The hardening of Rehoboam served God's purposes for Israel and for the nations of the world, just as the hardening of Pharaoh's heart did. The Lord could have told Rehoboam in advance concerning what he should do. Hey, listen to the elders. But he didn't. Thus, his plans came out in the intended way. Because these verses lead directly into the plagues on Egypt, before getting into them, now is the time to see some of the patterns which are to be found in these coming plagues. You don't necessarily need to remember these patterns, but if you can simply grasp them and comprehend them as I read them, you'll be able to more clearly see that there is design and there is purpose to how these plagues are going to occur. Okay, The entire account from this miracle to the Final hardening of Pharaoh's heart goes from Exodus 7, verse 8, until Exodus 11, verse 10. After that, the final plague will come upon Egypt, and Israel will be freed. Within these first nine plagues is an arrangement which shows groups of threes. In plagues 1 and 2, 4 and 5, and 7 and 8, there is an announcement by Moses to Pharaoh of what is coming before it occurs. However, in plagues 3, 6, and 9, which are the ending of the groups of threes, there is no announcement given. 
Also, in plagues one, four, and seven, which is the beginning of the groups of threes, the announcement is given in the morning time. Plagues one and four are announced by the Nile River because they deal with the Nile's waters. The plagues come from it. However, the location at the announcement of plague seven is not given because the plague comes from the heavens. In the sign of the rod becoming a snake, and for the first two plagues, the sorcerers of Egypt were able to copy what Moses and Aaron did. But by plague three, they acknowledged that it is the finger of God. In plague six, the magicians will be personally afflicted by boils so that they can't even stand before Moses. And in plague nine, Pharaoh will break off any further negotiations with Moses and Aaron. Thus, you have the pattern again, three, six, and nine. A distinction begins to be made between Egypt and the people of Israel in plagues four through nine. Egypt and the Egyptians are affected, but the Lord's people are not. In each of plagues five, seven, and nine, and only in those plagues, the term children of Israel is used, and they are explicitly noted as being spared from the plagues which occur. Throughout all of this, the term king of Egypt will never be used. Rather, only the term Pharaoh will be used, and it will be used exactly 66 times. Not until after the exodus of Israel will he be called the king of Egypt again in verse 14.5. These 66 times that Pharaoh is mentioned during the plagues of Egypt are a sign, and they are a precursor to the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation, which is 666. The last plague is unique, and it's set apart from the others. It is a direct action from the hand of God rather than a natural occurrence, directed by God, as the first nine plagues were. During these plagues, their severity slowly changes Pharaoh's mind about what he should do. He eventually will agree to let the people go, but with conditions. Each time he does so, Moses counters by removing the conditions imposed by Pharaoh or by stating more clearly what must be allowed when they are allowed to go. Each time, what Pharaoh does is he weighs the information and he rejects it, or he simply changes his mind once the plague is removed. He determines to ignore the advice of his highest counselors and even his own senses as the marvelous events in which he personally becomes a participant are ignored. And so his heart is increasingly hardened to the amazing events which occur around him. The Bible's progression through these plagues is a masterful work of patterns and logical design, but it is also a precise roadmap of how the human heart, which is opposed to God, will eventually work itself into a most stubborn and hard state. If one reads the book of Revelation, okay, you read it and you say, how can such terrifying events, which are proclaimed in advance of their coming, how are they going to be ignored by the people of the world? He's already told them what's coming. How is that going to happen? All they need to do is come back to the book of Exodus and see how it happened to Pharaoh. Verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Now, although there's seemingly not a lot to consider in this first verse, it still is a bit unusual. It's similar to one that we looked at in another sermon a few weeks ago. Normally when it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, it's followed in the same verse with what the Lord began to say. We're going to see this again and again and again in the coming verses during the Exodus, you know, account. However, these words here are separated as a standalone verse. I personally believe in the divine inspiration of every chapter in even the verse divisions, okay? They exactingly show patterns which permeate scripture. For a specific reason, the Lord ensured that this would be a separate introductory verse to the short account. And that reason may be to show the fulfillment of the previous section of seven verses. In them, the Lord once again showed that Moses was preferred above Aaron when it said this, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron shall be your prophet. That was Exodus 7 verse 1. This is despite the fact that Aaron is the elder of the two, which was explicitly noted in our last verse of the week last week, uh, verse 7, which said, And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Despite being younger, Moses is the Lord's preferred instrument for the work set before them. And so we're having our attention called to that fact in this introductory verse, which notes that Jehovah speaks to Moses and Aaron rather than Aaron and Moses. Further, 
it will become apparent that this is the case because in the next verse that we look at, Moses is told by the Lord to speak to Aaron. This then implies that the Lord is speaking to Moses directly and Aaron indirectly. Again, as we've already seen quite a few times in Exodus, this then makes a picture of divine inspiration. The Lord speaks to some and then his word is transmitted to others. However, the weight and the authority of the original words remains. The Lord spoke to and through Jeremiah the prophet, for example, and the people of Israel were expected to respond, not to Jeremiah, but to the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Lord spoke through the apostle Paul, and we are expected to respond to what Paul writes to us. He's the author of all of the church epistles. He is the one that gives us doctrine for the church. If we ignore him, we have no church. We've got a playroom that we're sitting in. The weight of divine authority rests upon the words of those that he chooses to speak through. Thus, when we disobey the words of the Bible, we disobey the one who spoke out the Bible through those that he spoke through. Let us not forget this as we read its words, consider its commands, and look in expectation to its promises. It is either all or nothing to God, and thus it should be all in all to us. It is our divine source of knowing God, learning how to live, and understanding what we should do with that knowledge. Verse 9, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourselves. It's obvious from this that during their previous encounter with Pharaoh, no sign was requested by him. They had asked for Israel to be allowed to go sacrifice to Jehovah, and Pharaoh turned them down. Okay, there was no need to go any further with the meeting because he held the upper hand. However, with their return to Pharaoh now, the Lord knows that he will demand something more of them if he's even going to listen to them. If they can't demonstrate that they have the authority of Jehovah, then there will be only one of two options that Pharaoh's going to consider. Either Jehovah doesn't really exist, or that even if he does exist, these guys are not his messengers. Thus, he will certainly request proof that their claimed authority is what it is. They're claiming authority, they're going to have to prove it. Further, if they can really support their claim through a miracle, he knew that his sorcerers would be able to do some type of miracle as well. And because they could, he would have an immediate claim to dismiss their request. Now, the Hebrew word for miracle, and we saw this last week, and I want to go through it again. It's the word mofet. It speaks of something out of the ordinary course of nature. It is an unusual phenomena, either natural or supernatural, which cries out for an explanation. It is not the same word used when Moses presented his three signs to the people of Israel. And remember, one of them was throwing down a rod and it becoming a snake. But a different word is used for that than it is for miracle here. Those signs that Moses did for the people of Israel were meant to validate the office and the authority of Moses to the people. All right? It was a token of future deliverance. The difference between these words may seem difficult to grasp, but maybe the best way to do this is to see signs as proofs of something which is coming and miracles of proofs that, of something that is. God will give a sign in the sun's movement that the spring is coming, or maybe that it's arrived. But he will give a wonder or a miracle to show that he is currently engaged in an activity, such as turning water into blood. However, even a miracle such as that can also be a sign of something else. I can ask you for a sign that you will pay me money back by seeing your pay stubs. We do this all the time. We go down to buy a car and they say, we want to know that you have a job, you have pay, and we want to verify that, or when you get a house. So we do this all the time. That would demonstrate to me that the future is assured by the job you're doing. I will get repaid. Or I can ask for a different type of sign, and we're going to call it a wonder or a miracle, because I'm going to ask Jim to run two miles in 10 minutes, right? <laughs> Thus proving that he is physically capable of working, and so he can pay me back. There's a difference in the two, but they can overlap, and they can end with the same result. Woohoo! I get repaid. In this, Pharaoh won't ask for a sign as if he's anticipating something from Jehovah. Rather, he asks for a miracle, as if he is expecting Jehovah to simply prove himself right here and right now. The miracle is asked of the representatives of Jehovah to prove that they have the divine commission from him. The miracle will stand as their validation. 
Verse 9 continues. Then you shall say to Aaron, as we can see here, the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron in verse 8 was actually the Lord speaking directly to Moses and indirectly to Aaron. It is Moses who would receive the word and he passes it on and it is Aaron who will act. Verse 9 goes on. Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh. Coming later in this chapter, we're going to read this. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. This is the first plague when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned into a serpent, you shall take in your hand. In this, we can see that the rod which is noted as Aaron's rod here is actually Moses' rod, the rod of God. This then reveals what is meant in Exodus 7, verse 1, which said this, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. As the rod belongs to Moses, and yet it is given to Aaron to perform the miracle, it will demonstrate that Moses has not only been granted power, but that he has been granted authority to delegate power. Thus Moses is as God to Pharaoh. He has the divine authority, and he has the designated representative of that authority. Verse 9 goes on, and let it become a serpent. The word for serpent here is not the same word concerning the snake which Moses saw at the burning bush. You remember that account? Completely different word. That word, when he was there at the burning bush, was nachash. This word here is tanin. It's not even close. It is used, this word tanin, 27 times in the Bible, but only three times in all of the book of Exodus, in Exodus 7.7, 7.9, and 7.12, meaning this account right here. It is used to signify any type of large reptile or even a sea monster. It corresponds with the Egyptian word tanem. You got tanin in Hebrew, tanem in Egyptian. That, according to Albert Barnes, is a synonym, this Egyptian word, of the monster serpent which represents the principle of antagonism to light and life. Okay? Keep that in mind. The Greek translation of this word, when it was translated into the Greek uh, language prior to the coming of Christ, is the word drakon. Sound familiar? That's where we get our word dragon from. The word drakon is used 13 times in guess which book of the New Testament? Revelation. It's used as a metaphor for the devil, who is Satan. In Jeremiah 51, the same Hebrew word, the word tanin, which is used here for serpent, is used when speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, the oppressor and the destroyer of Israel, when they were taken exiled to Babylon. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 51. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured me. Then he has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a monster. That word, tanin. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. Verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. This verse is based on Exodus 7, verse 2, which said this. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. Pharaoh didn't ask for a sign as soon as they walked in. Rather, they were granted access before Pharaoh, and they first spoke what they were instructed to speak. Only after they were asked for a miracle to prove themselves afterwards. Okay, In obedience to the Lord, they told Pharaoh what Jehovah expected, and so Pharaoh responded with his request, just as the Lord said would happen. Verse 10 continues. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Upon Pharaoh's request, Aaron produces his miracle. The rod becomes a reptile. Almost all Bibles interpret this as either a serpent or a snake. But the Jubilee Bible denotes a daringly descriptive designation of dragon. And Young's literal translation most meaningfully and marvelously mentions it as a monster. I would carefully consider the correct case of this confusingly crazy conundrum to correlate it to a cobra. The cobra would be a direct challenge to Pharaoh. It was the snake which adorned the headdress of Pharaoh. If so, then it would represent Uraeus, which was the symbol of sovereignty, royalty, deity, and divine authority. The reason why I believe this is a cobra rather than a crocodile is because later in verse 15, speaking of this exact same account, the word used to describe what happens here in this verse, we'll again call it a nachash, not a tanin. 
Therefore, it is a serpent, just like at the bush. But why are both words used if it's talking about the same thing? Why does it say Nachash here and Tanin here? I believe because it's a picture of Christ. Christ came and he was lifted up on the cross just as the Nachash or the snake was placed on the pole in the wilderness, if you know that account from the book of Numbers. Jesus cited that account in John chapter 3, saying that just as the serpent is raised up on the pole, so I will be raised up on the cross. However, the significance of what he did was missed by his people. It was like a false sign to them. The word tanin here then shows that Pharaoh failed to accept this as a true sign. Instead, he takes it as a false sign. Thus, two different words are used. What type of sign is it that you require of the Lord? What is it that you would expect God to do? Do you demand of him more than his word without even checking to see if his word is true? Would you demand more of him than he expects of you? What he desires is faith from an obedient heart. In this, he will know you believe his word is true. And in faith comes life eternal. From God, a brand new start. His word tells us of the giving of his son to die for sinners. He was nailed to a cross at Calvary. His word tells us that through him, everything is done. Eternal life awaits all who to Christ willingly bow the knee. Our second thought, an angel of light, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, but Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. When Pharaoh saw what Aaron did, he called his own wise men and sorcerers. The wise men here are called chakamin. They are men educated in both human and divine knowledge, and they are able to apply that knowledge in a wise way, hence the term wise men. The sorcerers are known as mekashafim. They would be like charmers or those who utter magic words. Just as Moses instructed Aaron, Pharaoh would then set himself against Moses by calling in his own subordinates. The question is, would the gods of Egypt be able to produce the same effects through his men as Jehovah could through Aaron? And if so, would they do so in a manner at least as notable, if not greater, than Aaron? Verse 11 continues. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. Here we have another category of people. They're called magicians. This word is chartumim. It is thought to be either scribes or those who knew sacred words because it comes from the word cheret, which means a tool, such as an iron pen or a stylus. So that's where we get this word for these people from. Through their magic, which could be nothing more than a, a magic show, which works by sleight of hand, all the way to true black magic, which uses the power of the devil to affect its work, they did the same enchantments. The word here for enchantments is lechatim, which equates to secret or hidden arts. Whatever is to be said about their secret arts, they were enough to be convincing to Pharaoh, even if they were false. And we don't know if they were, you know, actually black magic or just sleight of hand. This is no different, though, than what is coming in the future as well. In Revelation chapter 16, there is a comparable occurrence which will deceive the world, and it is certainly of satanic origin. Here's what it says. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. This power is also spoken of concerning the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Here we read this. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one, this is the Antichrist, is in according to the work of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And lest we feel safe in this dispensation, which we call the church age, before the coming of the Antichrist, we should probably remember Paul's words of Ephesians chapter 6. That tells us that even right now we are in a spiritual battle against the forces of wickedness. Only by covering ourselves with the implements of battle, which Paul very beautifully describes in that chapter, will we be able to stand unharmed against the devil's attacks. So I'd ask you to read that passage as well today and to ensure that you are prepared for this unseen and yet truly real battle that we are in right now. Verse 12, For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. Sure enough, 
by deceit or by true satanic powers, they were able to accomplish a similar feat. The result was that there were real reptiles there on the ground before Moses and Pharaoh. But the fact that they were able to do this may be another reason why the word is different than the word that was used when the rod was thrown down and became a snake at the burning bush. This second reason for using the word tanin instead of nachash may be that they both produced reptiles, but they were different types of reptiles because tanin can mean a whole host of things from crocodile to cobra. It may be that different reptiles were produced. The account doesn't say this, but the use of the word may imply it. If so, then it would explain why the next event comes about. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. These reptiles, whatever they actually became, are noted as rods here. The rod is the symbol of the power which it displays. Thus, this is the rod of God. It is a symbol of the power of Jehovah. The rods of the Egyptians symbolized the power that they possessed. Therefore, we are told that the rod swallowed the rods, not that the reptile swallowed the reptiles. One could ask why the Lord would choose this miracle before sending the plagues and why he chose it, knowing that Pharaoh's men would be able to reproduce the effect. I mean, you have to ask, why would the Lord allow that? There are several reasons for this. One is that in order to clear Moses from appearing as a mere magician, this wonder was chosen first. If not, then whatever he did after this was also may have been considered a mere magic sign, not a real display from God. But by defeating the false signs, the true sign here would stand out more apparently. The dragon of Moses was of far greater power than that of Pharaoh's. What they considered a protector god, that cobra on Pharaoh's headdress, was of no protection against the greater force which came against them. A second reason would be to bolster the confidence of the Israelites. Word would come to them, in fact, of what happened, and they would have a renewed hope because of the challenge that was ignored by Pharaoh. Their God had displayed that he was more powerful than the powers of Pharaoh. Even if Pharaoh rejected it, the Israelites would know the truth of the matter. And third, this miracle, along with the coming plagues, is given as a direct confrontation to the many gods of Egypt. Knowing that Jehovah will defeat Egypt through the very objects which the Egyptians worshipped would be a sign to them that only Jehovah was worthy of worship. And sure enough, the miracles of Egypt are recorded in both the 78th and the 105th Psalms as a testimony to the people of the greatness of Jehovah and his superiority over the false gods of Egypt. Now, earlier I cited Albert Barnes concerning the Egyptian beast Tanem, which Tanin corresponds to. Here's what he said about it. It is a synonym of the monster serpent, which represents the principle of antagonism to light and life. Now remember, Jesus is light and Jesus is our life. If this is so, then Jehovah has proven his light and his life to be greater than the antagonist, Satan, who transforms himself into an angel of light, and yet he thrives on darkness and death. However, Despite the victory of Jehovah over these workers of iniquity in this first miracle, we will see that Pharaoh has been coaxed into believing that he is still able to withstand the force which has come against him. Don't you be distracted by Satan's cunning lies. Don't allow his deceit to creep in and steal your heart away. On the Lord Jesus, there alone fix your eyes. Press on for the goal of Christ each and every day. Surely there is a glorious reward awaiting those of us who walk in this life with our gaze firmly fixed on Jesus. Though the devil has power, against it we can stand, having the shield of faith to quench every fiery dart. And with the Bible always ready, always at hand, let us press on towards the goal with Jesus in our heart. Our third thought, the hardening heart. That's verse 13. Begins with, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. The words are, ve'yehazak lev Pharaoh. Some translations, such as the King James Version, incorrectly state this, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart. This would be a mistranslation. The verb is neuter and intransitive, and Pharaoh's heart is in the nominative case. It should be translated as Pharaoh's heart hardened itself. It is true that passively it is the Lord who is acting upon Pharaoh to harden his heart, but it is an active measure of Pharaoh to respond to it. 
Example, a child can passively make me angry by sticking his tongue out at me, but I am the one who actually gets angry. Jim's over here laughing because he knows the children at mission work every Saturday push my buttons. I don't handle children well. Anyway, saying the child made Charlie angry is sort of true, but it doesn't convey the whole matter. Rather, to properly identify what's going on, you would say Charlie allowed himself to get angry at the prodding of a little kid. I could have just ignored him, or I could have laughed him off, but instead I allowed myself to get upset. Now, this is a big difference, and this is very important to understand what's going on, because this affects theology all the way through the Bible, whether you believe it or not. In the same way, Jehovah has purposely chosen a path which has been favorable to Pharaoh's own arrogant demeanor. But Pharaoh is still fully responsible for his actions. God does not act in an arbitrary manner ever. He will only act to harden those who are disposed already to being hardened. And if he does so, it will be for his purposes. We saw that with Rehoboam. Remember that at the beginning of the sermon? In this case, it leads ultimately to the redeeming of his people Israel. But he could have done this at any time when a different pharaoh would have responded differently. Couldn't he? If you think about it, the fact that he didn't shows that he has a specific purpose for choosing this pharaoh at this time. If he were to have done it with the same purpose at a different time and yet expected the same results, then he would have to violate his own moral character by actively hardening somebody who would have let them go. This pharaoh right from the beginning of Exodus, and I mean right at the beginning. He's proven himself to be a tyrant, he's self-willed, and he's obstinate. He's already hardened himself against God, and therefore the actions taken by the Lord now are in accord with his perfect moral character. Any action by God in the hardening process is because this man has already hardened himself. Therefore the punishments which will result in the chapters ahead will be just, and they will be justly due not arbitrary, and not vindictive. This is what sets Jehovah apart from all other gods all the way through humanity. They all ascribe emotions to their God, and one of them is vindictiveness, and that is not to be found in the God of the Bible. He is infinite in his being, and his being is moral, it is just, it is righteous, and it is holy. He does nothing which is wrong, and he will never never, never pervert justice in the sentencing of his creatures. In other words, when we receive penal judgment, we get what we deserve. The cries of foul that ring out all over the world against the God of the Bible are wholly unfounded, and they fail to take into consideration his perfect character. What we need is mercy. What we need is not getting what we do deserve. If God always gave us what we deserved, we would be swept away just like Pharaoh will be. In the end, whether Pharaoh actually believed that those reptiles were real and that one really devoured the others did not matter to him at all. Instead, he looked at this miracle by the Lord as just a different degree of the same thing accomplished by his men. He saw it as one type of work that happened to be a little bit better coming from Moses. Thus, he hardened his heart even though this was the Lord's intent. It was still Pharaoh's decision to act upon. Verse 13 finishes with these words, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Ka'asher deber Yehovah, as had said Yehovah. The Lord spoke because the Lord knew. He knew what Pharaoh would do when he, calling for his magicians, and he knew what Pharaoh would do when his magicians performed a miracle similar to Aaron's. He allowed himself to be taken in by a lie. Satan had his hand in the situation, further deceiving Pharaoh, who was already deceived. As Matthew Henry notes about what has transpired, he says this, None assist more in the destruction of sinners than such as resist the truth by amusing men with a counterfeit resemblance of it. Satan is most to be dreaded when transformed into an angel of light. Those who practiced the devil's arts, though not on par with the hand of the Lord, were enough to seduce Pharaoh into believing that he was on a sound path. All the while, though, he's heading towards his own final doom. Paul warns us of exactly, and I mean exactly, the same thing in his second letter to Timothy. There in the third chapter, he actually cites two men by name. They are the magicians who faced off against Moses. 
Paul's words are a warning and they stand as a testimony to us to watch out for false workers who masquerade behind their false works. So I want to read you the sobering warning. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Think of these churches all over that we have in our prophecy update every week. I'll continue on now. Uh, they're disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, here you go, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, also learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now here he names the two men. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So he goes back to this account to cite what goes on in churches even today and in the world around us. False workers with their false words leading people astray. The word of the Lord is filled with proof that it is what it claims to be. It is the divine authority to guide and to regulate our lives. But if we willingly choose to neglect it or to speak against it or to disobey it, then he may allow a snare to entangle us. Let us endeavor not to be so trapped, but be willing and open and obedient to his good word. And of all the things that we need to be obedient to in that precious book, the first is to call on Jesus Christ as Lord. If we were to perfectly do every single thing in the Bible that is demanded of us, we would still fall short of the glory of God. We can never attain to his perfection because we already have sin in our lives. Only Jesus Christ can take away that sin. Only he can restore us to God. In fact, if we try to please God through our works without going through Christ first, we actually make it worse. That becomes self-idolatry. I don't care what this says. I'm just going to do what I say because I know that I can speak for God. We reject the gift that he has offered. Don't be like obstinate Pharaoh, but rather yield to the Lord. Let me tell you how you can. The Bible says that we have all sinned. I just said that a moment ago, and it's an absolute truth. I tried to talk to a little seven-year-old girl last yesterday. Maybe she was eight. And I asked her, you know, have you ever told lie? No. And I said, well, I, I can't help you with that one, girl. I said, until you're going to come to a ability to acknowledge your own sin, then I can't help you with the correction to that sin. So I'll ask her again next week. I see her every single week. She's one of my button pushers. But eventually, eventually she will admit that she's done something wrong. And then I can give her the gospel. But until somebody is willing to see their own sin in the face of the law, they can never come to Christ. You have to give somebody like that the law first and then lead them to Christ. But some people already know that they have sin in their lives. They know that there's something wrong and all you need to do is give them the gospel. If you know that you have sin in your life and you're willing to admit that, then what you need to do is ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Lord Jesus, I know that you're perfect in your very being. You came from God. You lived the law perfectly. You gave your life up in exchange for my sins and I want that. And that's all you need to do. Just call on Jesus Christ. All who call on the name of the Lord will, not maybe, will be saved. And then after that, go out and do great things for God in the name of Jesus Christ. That is what he would ask you to do. And get that word out because I do think, and I know I've been thinking this for 10 years, but I do think we're really close to the end. I think that Christ is going to come for his church one of these days, and may it be soon. Okay, our closing verse today comes from Proverbs chapter 28. It's verse 14. Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Don't harden your heart, okay? Next week is Exodus 7, 14 through 25. That's our first plague, the plague of blood. That'll be our 20th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he has a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called The Hardening of the Heart. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you in this way, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, I am praying, then to Aaron you shall say, 
Take your rod, and before Pharaoh cast it, and let it become a serpent, as I instruct you, so you shall your actions commit. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and just as the Lord commanded, they did so. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, and before his servants too, and it became a serpent, as we now know, just as the Lord told them, so it did do. But Pharaoh also called his men too, the wise men and the sorcerers and their assignments, so the magicians of Egypt, they also it did do, in like man in manner with their enchantments. For every man down his rod threw, and they also became serpents too. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart hard it grew. And he did not heed them. There were no favorable nods, as the Lord had said, just as the Lord already knew. Though Aaron performed a miracle with his rod, Pharaoh hardened his heart even more. He rejected the sign, though it was from God, being stony, becoming stony to the core. We too have a miracle presented to us, one that is well documented and attested to. It is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is a sign which offers life to me and you. If we soften our hearts and receive Jesus as Savior, we will be sealed with the Holy Spirit, a heavenly guarantee. And with his guidance, we can adjust our life's behavior, becoming more like the Lord as we follow obediently. So let us follow this, the right and holy path, and be saved by his blood shed on the cross of Calvary. In this, we become children, God's children saved from his wrath, and we are set on a heavenly course for all eternity. Thank you, O oh God, for this wonderful assurance. Thank you for what you have done for sinners like us. Give us, O oh God, continued endurance until the day we are called home to be with Jesus. Yes, thank you, O oh God, for our precious Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, help our hearts to be soft and to stay soft. Help us not to let little children get us riled up or false workers to lead our hearts astray by their false works. Help us to accept your word at face value, that it is the word of God because it's proven itself. And once it's proven itself as such, we should treat it as such, holy, pure, undefiled, and worthy of obedience to. And help us to rightly divide this word because there are certain things that are commanded in the Bible that we're not required to do anymore. And there are certain people that have written instructions to us that we are required to follow. And so help us to rightly divide this word so that we can perceive what you would have us do without getting in all kinds of crazy doctrine and crazy errors. Help us just to be perfect in your sight as we walk in your presence all our days. And as we do, we'll give you all of our praise. We love you and we do praise you. And we say that in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he gave thanks over it. He would have said these words. Baruch Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
people out here first. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Yes, Lord, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the lessons it teaches us. Thank you for the chance to come to this table and to celebrate the Lord's death until he comes again. Thank you that next Sunday is Palm Sunday. We'll uh, be remembering that he was hailed the King of Israel for a short period of time before he was rejected. We look forward to the uh, season that's ahead and the special occasions we'll cherish in our heart, remembering those days till someday we'll see them in the fullness of the kingdom of God when we stand in your presence. How wonderful that'll be. We long for it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.